And now, friends, it's time for us to pay a few bills. SongTrust is the world's largest technology solution for global music royalty collection and publishing administration, enabling 205,000-plus songwriters and more than 26,000 publishers to collect their publishing royalties worldwide for over 2 million copyrights. Be sure and visit songtrust.com forward slash pubcast to take advantage of a 20% off discount for a one-time registration just for listening to the AIMP Nashville Pubcast. And now, friends, let's get on with the show. Hello, listeners. On this episode of the AIMP Nashville Pubcast, we are talking with one of my longtime friends and mentors, and I do not hesitate to call him a publishing icon, Lionel Conley. Hello, listeners. This is Tim coming back at you with the Nashville Pubcast, and I am very just ecstatic to be sitting with one of my longtime friends and 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 one of my really dear mentors, Lionel Conway. And we're going to just sit around and chat about publishing today. And if anybody has some knowledge of publishing, it's my good friend, Lionel Conway. I'll give you a little backstory. It started back at a little company called Dick James, which I think a lot of people are pretty aware of in the music business. But given the movie Rocket Man here recently, I think a lot more people know who it is. But they worked with a couple little acts, the Beatles, Elton John, who you were very involved in. We'll get into some of that. And then you... Uh, also worked for another one of my favorite companies as a, as a kid growing up, which was Island. Uh, you ran the uh, publishing division of Island uh, Records with uh, Mr. Chris Blackwell. And in that tenure, you worked with some artists like Cat Stevens and U2 and Tom Waits and Robert Palmer. And one of the ones I did not know you worked with was Paul Rogers. I did not know that you had worked with Paul before he joined Bad Company, which was new news to me. How did I not know that? I'm very surprised. And uh, and then from there, you you went on to uh, start Maverick Music with uh, Madonna and Guy Osseri. And then after that little yeah. tenure that you were with Maverick, that's when you and I got introduced and you started working for a company called Mosaic Media Group and you bought my then company, Hamstein Music Group. And that's where you and I began our, our working relationship. And we uh, both worked for a company called Stage 3 that was based out of the UK with uh, with Mr. Uh, Steve Lewis. And and then after that, we both had some stents at BMG, which bought Stage 3. And uh, that led you to your now current company, uh, Mothership. Is it Mothership Music? Is that the official title? Hi, Tim. Yes, uh, yeah, that's the name, Mothership. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I started that seven years ago with uh, with a partner called uh, Hein. Uh, sorry, uh, Brett Gurowitz, who was the founder member of uh, a band, punk band called Bad Religion, uh, and he also owned two labels. Epitaph, and another label called Anti. And uh, the act that uh, that I basically signed to Anti was Tom Waits. So I still represent Tom Waits from 1983. That is a uh, long so time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I still represent him to this day, so it's been a long relationship. So let's let's start go back a little bit at the beginning. Yeah. How old were you when you started working at Dick James? Well, actually, I did work for Dick James, but he didn't own the company. I worked for another company where he worked. It was called Sydney Brom, oh. and that was that was in nineteen. Oh my God, nineteen fifty four, which makes this my sixty sixth year in the music business. 
that just blows my mind, Lionel. I don't, I don't even understand. I don't even understand yeah. how you've done it this long. I, yeah, I was 15 and uh, I was basically what we called in England a tea boy is basically, you know, someone who actually does make tea, but also does uh, all the, you know, the manual stuff, menial stuff, like uh, doing all the errands. And it was a terrible job of which I, you know, I was only paid uh, three pounds, which is about $4 a week. Uh, but it was, um, you know, I did meet new people in the music businesses, which, uh, which that's probably why I stayed. I mean, I, I didn't intend to leave school. I wanted to sort of have a, have a decent education. But after getting a job with a music publisher, I decided to leave school mid-term. Uh, my parents were pretty upset, but I said, I, I want to do this. I want to stay in the music business. And I did. You... I, think I, I, don't know I, I don't know if I overstayed my welcome in a long time. Well, I've always said, and, and I know this from working with you, that uh, my joke, and you know, I've, I've said it to you, that when I grow up, I want to be just like Lionel Conway. And there's a, there's a couple reasons for that. One of the biggest reasons is is your passion. And uh, my question, my first question, and I know part of it is because you're so passionate, but is what do you credit this longevity and relevancy to? Because it's not easy because obviously music changes, trends change, the business changed, and how have you been able to to keep you know relevant through all these changes in all these years? Well, I actually, you know, when I think about your career, you, you just said that uh, the companies that you you worked for sold out, and uh, I was always lucky to bounce back, and uh, that's and now why? What? Why? Why was I able to do that? I think uh, all my bosses now. Of course, I don't have a boss; I do it myself. Um, knew of my passion for music and my also it's taste isn't it i mean you've got very good taste uh, as far as country and and i have an overall good taste in music you know i i you know i it's all about songs but also it's character and whether your writers like you and most of them do i've had a couple of <laughs> problems with writers over the years but you know i try to do as much as i can for my writers and um uh, uh, and it's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm established now as somebody that, you know, if I sign anyone, I'm going to work 24-7 on their songs and on, on everything. You know, I mean, I signed a, a new band called the Marias, and I've done everything for this band. Record deal, I've got them uh, gigs, and, you know, I've got the manager. I do everything for them, and I think it's appreciated. So you're you're what we used to also joke around and say uh, you're a full service publisher. You take it from the very beginning to end, development, whatever needs to get done. You put your hands in and you get it done. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do get involved. Very involved. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it's got to be music that you personally like. Now, I, you know, over the years, I've had a lot of bands that uh, that I haven't liked. Um. But but and and I haven't played at my you know, usually you know I want to play in my car or at the house. Uh, but and it's been music that I ha I can't play to people now. Why did I sign them? Because my either uh, I thought it was fashionably good for me to have a band like uh, won't mention any names. Uh, <laughs> but that doesn't. That, but but 
90% of the music that I have is something that I play at home that I really like. That's a, that's definitely, uh, I get what you're saying in that. And, and you, you held true to that during the years that we worked together and you allowed me to sign things that I know that you weren't, maybe weren't your particular taste, but you trusted me to, uh, to work and, and develop. And I'd say we did pretty good together. Most of them worked out. Yep. Yep. No, it was a, it was a magic period that, uh, both, you know, buying the Bill Ham catalog and, and then, uh, you know, the Aerosmith and, and and of course ZZ Top I bought as well. They were great catalogs, but the country part was that was that was I had a lot of pride in the fact that we built a really big publishing company uh, with the additional writers that we signed. You know Bob Pinson and Bobby Pinson who won BMI Writer of the Year uh, and uh, and the other guy Brett James. Name? Brett James. Oh my God. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Brett. Yeah. <laughs> the the one won, and only. ASCAP writer of the year. I mean, we we just we nailed it. We we were fantastic. Unfortunately, these companies get bought and sold. It's happening all the time, even more so now because the multiples have increased uh, because of streaming. You know, it's gone a lot higher than it was when when uh, when I was buying catalogs. Well, that leads me to a, a a good question or a segue to a question: Is you truly have seen? I think music publishing developed because in the earlier days when you first started out, it was, I mean, it'd been around, but you've seen it more of an infancy into this, this maturity that we have now of, of, of it being basically an ass, a bought and sold asset. Walk us through how you've seen, if you could publishing start on, on a, on the level of when you first got into the business and to the, the major money that we're looking at now. Well, when I started, when I first started, um, the expression A and R, uh, a lot of people don't even know what that stands for. It's artist and repertoire, which means that record companies employed these guys to go around find, trying to find singers, artists. Then their job was to match the repertoire with the artist. So it was a it was a songwriter business back in the sixties and fifties and sixties, in as much that the right the artists never wrote songs. So that that's the that's that that was the the R part was to find songs for these artists. So it was a good good times for publishers because they could uh, could get their songs recorded by major artists. Of course, I, after the Beatles, it became you know it was much different in as much that writers uh, artists became writers. But before then, no, they weren't. All those uh, Sinatras and after that, they were they looked for songs and so. It was easier, uh, but then when the artists became writers, it was tougher. You had to sign writers that were artists as well. So it changed. It changed from like the Beatles onward. Do you think the Beatles were somewhat instrumental in that at that time, or were there other artists at the oh, same? Uh, absolutely, yeah. When the Beatles became successful, you found that a lot of the bands started. Oh, they, they didn't start. They 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 wrote their own songs. Uh, you know, when you think of uh, Simon and Garfunkel, they, they didn't take any covers. You know, they did their own songs. Neil Diamond, uh, Neil Sedaka, they did. They started writing their own songs. So that's very similar to how it was actually in the 80s in Nashville when I came in. Most artists looked for outside songs. And as we were building publishing companies, it was really a great time to pitch songs. You could build vast uh, catalogs, sign a bunch of writers because the artists didn't write much. 
And, you know, that was a, right. Alan Jackson started riding on. But, you know, big guys like Tim McGraw and Reba McIntyre, Trisha Yearwood, most of them at the time when I came in were looking for outside songs. And then all of a sudden, now, currently, it feels like everybody wants to write their own songs, which does create a different challenge. It doesn't change the business necessarily. It just changed how you operate as a publishing company. Yeah, it's, it, it, it happened in Nashville maybe 20, 30 years later. But, um, you know, it definitely started uh, outside Nashville in the 60s and 70s. But certainly you're right. It happened in, the, in, in Nashville, what, in the 90s? Yeah, that was when about the era. Yep, everybody yeah. started wanting to write, and you started setting up more artists co-writes as opposed to just the pure writers in a room. And and now it's pretty much three writers in a room, usually with a track guy that's writing the the track, and and yeah. then, uh, and throwing in an artist. And now we're kind of it's, it's funny that we're twenty years behind <laughs> where you started. <laughs> And you are right. I didn't. I didn't yeah. think about that far. That back in the Sinatra era and the earlier days, that they too just cut great songs. Yeah, they were great writers. You know, the American Songbook is just full of. But of course, it changed once once we started having self sufficient talent. Uh, so then in Nashville, it changed, but it is changing, right? Oh yeah. Those writers that we, that we knew years ago that had hit after hit, they don't have them anymore. Yeah, we have a new slew of them now. <laughs> There's new ones that are doing it, but it's it's a definitely transition. Now you have again had such a breadth of, of knowledge having started your we didn't really transition you started in the uk obviously from the, the early companies we mentioned and you transitioned over yeah. to the united states and you've worked in the country market you've worked in the pop market how do you see you've seen a lot of changes in deals i'm, I'm getting specific now and just i've watched the publishing deal start to transition well, how do you see things changing in the future because I've, I've seen some challenges in doing deals because Obviously, cuts make no money. Um, streaming numbers are starting to become better, but it's not up to up to snuff. But how have you watched the the, the deals themselves transition? Um, it, it is a lot different now. You know, before there was, um, you know, we did code uh, publishing where you know you got twenty five and the band got seventy five, and you got life of copyright. That's changing now. Uh, unless, of course, you know, it's below the radar and, and uh, the act is looking for some money and they have to, um, you know, they have to do a publishing deal. I don't force that, but uh, but they, those are the deals that I'm looking for, uh, below the radar, where an act needs help, they need some money, and I'm still able to do those sort of uh, deals, you know, where, where you get a little bit, but, you know, the majors are doing, even the majors are doing very small, um, uh, very short reversion. Uh, I can't do that because I'm building a business. I can't do short reversions. It does depend on what kind of company you run. If I was running a major now, I, I would do those deals because you're looking for market share. Uh, but being a, an independent publisher, um, and hoping to build a business, you can't do those sort of cobalt deals. You can't do them. Cobalt will 
Vaccine was signed an act uh, with a very small percentage, with a very short reversion, and it suits them because it's all, it, it's, you know, it's a, a volume business for them. It's a volume business. Whereas with me, I'm trying to build a, a, a company that has great songs, and I keep them. And you're trying to build assets, which again, I, I, you were really good to me in teaching me because I, I knew Nashville, but you you really opened me up to the global market um, of what international publishing means and what it means to actually build a company and, and from the basics of like building NPS and all that. And I just don't understand the reversions. I get that this is where we're at, but you cannot build an asset off of that. Like down the road, even these majors, if they do enough of these they don't build the catalogs anymore. I don't know how it's a sustainable model and where we're going and how you can do that. And again, I, my whole career has been independent and I've never done reversions, but I am getting pushback a lot on that now. This is the new thing. Like after 10 or 20 years, well, they want to revert. Yeah, well, you know, we were, you were saying that Nashville is behind <laughs> yes. uh, as far as uh, songwriters and now they're behind on deals because – it's very rare that you get the kind of deals that we're used to, that we, that we, you know, that, that happened to us all the time. And lawyers do not want to give you rever- uh, any, any, um, they, they want reversion. Uh, they want an advance. And, uh, you know, I, I can't, you know, I can't really compete with that. And probably you can't either, but, the majors are doing these deals now. It's not just the Cobalts and those sort of, you know, it's the majors that are, that are doing short reversions. But do you see that in the future being problematic with their ability to sustain? I, yeah, well, I think what the deal, I, I tell you what's probably going to happen is that because any band now that does fair, good numbers on, on the streaming companies, uh, that are say doing a million a week, and it's it, that's not unheard of. They're getting nice checks from Spotify and, and YouTube and all the others that they can afford not to run in, not, not not to rush into deals, not just for publishing but records. And you'll find if you go through like uh, uh, these bands that are doing million, two million a week, that they're not doing publishing or record deals. Now, publishing deals they do need. They need somebody to, you know, it's become a very, very, it's like a wild west. You know, you really need to navigate around what's going on in the industry now with collection of royalties. Um, so they need a publisher. Now, do they need to do a joint venture or a co-pub? Not really. They don't have to. Uh, but, you know, with, with 24-7 service that you and I give these acts, then I expect to get that, and uh, you know, I'm 95% of this, the acts that I have, I do have long term or life of copyright. Uh, but I do, you know, I'm, I'm available 24/7. They're royalty states. I go through them so that they understand where the money's coming from. So I mean, I, I do a lot more than what the the majors do, and I know what I offer. Well, that's the, uh, well, again, having worked together, I learned a lot on how to walk them through the money. And that's really the key. And I would say this to any independent artist that at least on an admin level, although like you, I, I prefer get some copyright added in. 
that you need to collect your money. And it does help when you have licensings coming at you and sync and, and international territories and have somebody help funneling. You can be leaving a lot of money on the table if you don't really get organized. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I took over an act just recently and uh, they hadn't registered uh, overseas. So they weren't getting any uh, foreign income. Uh, they hadn't registered their, their, their works with uh, with uh, um, Spotify or the streaming companies, so they weren't getting paid any digital. Uh, it's crazy, but they were getting nice checks from from the mechanical side, the master side. When they own the master, they're getting neighboring rights overseas, and they're getting uh, sound exchange from, from America domestically. So they're getting nice little checks, and they don't worry about every, anything else. And there's maybe that you know and they're leaving probably fifty percent of their income with because they haven't done a good job in in policing their music. And that is a value. And again, I can't stress enough that I find that people that are are like that that haven't had publishing deals or at least experienced what you and I are talking about of really serviced publishing, where you're not just you know, an, an income stream that, that that's parked on a shelf, but that you're getting a time and attention and growth and feedback and, and all the administrative back end where we're making sure your, your, your money's collected and helping explain to you where your money's coming from and helping all that flow that, that, and again, this is why I love publishing because it's such a value added. And, and I do feel that long-term publishing companies are going to be still around as long as, as they can be. Cause they, we are also transitioning into, and you've mentioned it and you work with a record label that we are now the A&R. You've probably seen this firsthand from where labels were intimately involved in A&R to now because of asset and time and everything, they don't have as much resources to put into that. And we as publishers are the ones that put all the work into developing these acts that then get shopped. Like you mentioned the Marias. I'm sure you were, again, very intimately involved at the front end to help them move forward into getting their deal, correct? Yeah, very much so. I mean, if, they, if it hadn't been me, they wouldn't have been probably been able to do any shows. Because uh, there are a lot of things to buy for a new young band, you know, and that's uh, without me, they couldn't have done it. And that's that's a good reason to continue to uh, to build a relationship with your publisher and find a good publisher that's willing to walk with you, especially with independent artists that are, are uh, trying to you know grow their brand. Don't think they need a label or or whatever. Again, financially, it's just so important to keep all that together. And there's a lot, as you just mentioned, you went through a whole bunch of income streams really fast. If you don't have all that taken care of, it, it, you're leaving just so much money on the table. Yeah, yeah. Now, how do you feel? Uh, you know, I saw a panel recently with David Israelite talking about fractional licensing of being able to pull some of our rights out of uh, the PROs and direct, to your point, do more direct licensing, and particularly the digital. They tried to do it, you know, a few years back, and they, they, they basically said we couldn't do that. If you pull one right, you have to pull all of it, and we were not prepared administratively to handle that do you support that decision? You think that's a good move for publishers? I we have something in this country, and it's uh, well, no, not so, it's not so bad here actually. It's overseas. The blanket license is where your works um, that that are placed in TV, in TV or radio are, are are negotiated by a tariff, a card. 
you don't negotiate. It's a blanket license. They, anyone can use your music. They have to pay, but it's but the payment is by tariff rather uh, by a negotiation. This country is much better. You know, you can negotiate every sync license and and every recording license, but overseas, it's it's ninety percent of the business is handled by a blanket license. So you don't have any any source of direct negotiation with whoever uses the music. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AIMP National Pubcast. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform and follow us at AIMP Nashville to keep up with news, events, panels, and even new episodes. The AIMP National Pubcast is created by executive producers Dale Bobo and Tim Hunsey, producer Brandon Harrington, mixing and editing by Casey Porter. Thanks for listening and supporting the AIMP National Pubcast. 